Well, good morning once again. Whew. All right. Take a moment to catch my breath. Um, thank you to the worship team. It sounded great. Thank you for leading us this morning. Uh, thanks to uh, Steve for the great communion meditation. And uh, I hope you are blessed by being here today. So if you have been tracking with us the last few weeks, we are in a series that I'm calling Close Encounters with Christ. We're walking through the Gospel of John. So if you have your Bibles or your Bible apps, go ahead and open to John chapter 4. If you're using the U version, I'd like to remind you that in that app, you can click on the little icon down in the bottom right, says More, and then go to Events. And you'll be able to find Tulip Street Christian Church, and that's got all the sermon notes. And uh, especially this week, there's some extras in there. Like, there was just so much that I wanted to cover with this that I had to be like, okay, what do I leave out? So if you're using the YouVersion app, make sure you go to that event, save those notes so you can come back to it, because there's some links to some YouTube videos that I thought were really powerful, really helpful in going maybe a little deeper in this story as well. Uh, One's a poem, one's a song, and one is just kind of an explainer video from Bible Project. Uh, All good stuff, so if you're interested in going a little bit deeper on your own, make sure you click save so you can access that on your own time. But here we are in John chapter 4, the story of the woman at the well. And when I talk about close encounters with Christ, I think this is really one of the stories that comes to mind. Because this is the most lengthy conversation Jesus has with any one person so far. We've seen him talk with some of his first disciples. Uh, He's had an encounter with John the Baptist, had an encounter with Nicodemus. But now we get to this woman beside Jacob's well in the region of Samaria. So just to kind of recap a little bit of what gets us here, I want us to think of Jesus as the challenger, right? He comes to challenge all sorts of systems and norms and just the way we do things in a lot of different ways. Right at the beginning of chapter 2, we see that he challenges the empty religious rituals by saying, fill up those jars that are used for the ritual cleaning, fill those up with water, let's turn it into wine to save this wedding party. He turns shame into celebration. We also see in chapter 2 that he challenges the greedy temple system. He goes into the temple where they're buying and selling, making it hard for people to worship, and he overturns the tables, drives them all out. Says, "My, my father's house is supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations. You've turned it into a den of robbers. So he opens worship to the nations by challenging the status quo in the temple of greed. And then in chapter three, with his conversation with Nicodemus, we see that he challenges the religious leadership and their teachings, right? He takes this uh, man, Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee, one of the teachers of Israel, one of the rulers, and he takes them through kind of a master's level course through the Hebrew scriptures and saying how it all kind of points to him and how to re- reinterpret and, and understand and apply these things that Nicodemus should have known for himself. 
He challenges the traditional religious teachings and, and leadership. And he reinterprets it around himself. And then here in chapter 4, we see that Jesus challenges the social, ethnic, and religious hierarchy. He breaks all the taboos in having this conversation with this woman. He breaks down all of those barriers. He transforms a woman's life and converts an entire town of Samaritans because he challenged the status quo. See, if we let him, Jesus will speak into our lives and challenge the status quo that we have, the, the way we have of doing things, the way that we are most comfortable with. Jesus will challenge that. Just when you start to get comfortable with something, Jesus throws a wrench in the plans and he forces us to see things in a different way through heavenly eyes, the way God sees them, not just the way we've grown accustomed to seeing things. So he does that with this woman at the well in John chapter 4. He breaks down all of those barriers. And uh, we just lost the stuff. <laughs> um, with this woman at the well. So it starts off saying he had to go through Samaria, which I find interesting. Because he's spent some time in Jerusalem, which is down in the south. And it says he had to go through Samaria. Well, did he? Because most good Jews would have gone out of their way to go around Samaria. They would have exited across the Jordan River, gone up north, and then crossed back over into Galilee to avoid the region of Samaria altogether. So, so Jesus had to go through Samaria. I think Jesus knew this encounter that he was being prepared to, to experience. He knew there was a woman that was going to be waiting for him. And this woman... He had no business talking to. In fact, I titled this sermon, Do You Know Who You're Talking To? Because there's, there's this interaction where at first the woman is like, are you really, are you talking to me? Do you know who you're talking to? And then later on toward the end, Jesus kind of flips that back on her. Like, do you know who you're talking to? So he has this conversation with this woman. Um, but here's the thing. I didn't want to uh, just read the story. I actually wanted to show the story. And many of you have watched the Chosen series. Now, I wasn't in on that whole uh, video discussion, but it, it was a really good series. And I think what they did with this story in John chapter 4 is really outstanding. So follow along in your Bibles, but also watch this video, and I hope it all works. Would you give me a drink? Did you hear me? That's bad, huh? What? You, a Jew, ask her to drink from me, a Samaritan, and a woman. I'm sorry. I should have said please. You know, it's not safe for you to be alone out here. Nor you. Why haven't you come with others? Why so late in the day? Don't women come to the wells in the, the cool of the morning? Yeah, well, none of them will be seen with me, so I have to come at noon in the heat, as you have so kindly reminded me. Why won't they be seen with you? 
long story. I'd still like a drink of water if you can spare it. Amazing what a parched throat will do. Aren't I unclean to you? Won't you be defiled by this vessel? Maybe some of my people say that about your women, but I don't. Yeah? And what do you say? I say if you knew who I am, you'd be asking me for a drink. Really? And I would give you living water. Wood. Except that you have nothing to draw water with, and this is a deep well. Besides, what do you need from me if you have your own supply of living water? Long story. But Jewish water is better than Samaritan water. Hmm? That's not what I said. Are you a better man than our ancestor Jacob, who dug this well? Your water is better than his? I know, Jacob. And everyone who drinks this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. Wouldn't that be nice? The water I give will become in a person a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Really? Yes, really. Prove it. First, go and call your husband and come back. I will show you both. I don't have a husband. You are right. You've had five husbands. And the man you're living with now is not your husband. <laughs> oh, I see. You're a prophet. You're here to preach at me. No. Usually the one good thing about coming here alone is I can escape being condemned. I'm not here to condemn you. I've made mistakes. Too many. But it's men like you who have made it impossible for me to do anything about it. How? Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain. But you Jews insist Jerusalem is the only place for true worship. They say that because the temple is there. Yeah, exactly where we're not allowed. I'm here to break those barriers. And the time is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. So, where am I supposed to go when I need God? I've never received anything from God, but I couldn't thank him even if I did. Anywhere. God is spirit, and the time is coming and is now here that it won't matter where you worship, but only that you do it in spirit and truth. Heart and mind, that, that is the kind of worshiper he's looking for. It won't matter where you're from or what you've done. Do you believe what I'm telling you? <laughs> Until the Messiah comes and explains everything and sorts this mess out, including me, I don't trust in anyone. You're wrong when you say that you've never received anything from God. This Messiah you speak of, I am he. The first one was named Ramin. You were a woman of purity who was excited to be married. But he wasn't a good man. He hurt you. 
and it made you question marriage and even the practice of your faith. Stop it. The second was Farzad. On your wedding night, his skin smelled like oranges. And to this day, every time you pass by the oranges in the market, you feel guilty for leaving him because he was the only truly godly man you've been with. But you felt unworthy. Why are you doing this? I have not revealed myself to the public as the Messiah. You are the first. It would be good if you believed me. You picked the wrong person. I came to Samaria just to meet you. <laughs> Do you think it's an accident that I'm, I'm here in the middle of the day? I am rejected by others. I know. But not by the Messiah. And you know these things because you are the Christ. I'm going to tell everyone. I was counting on it. <laughs> Spirit and truth. Spirit and truth. It won't be all about mountains or temples. Soon, just the heart. You promise. This man told me everything I've done. Oh, he must be the Christ! <laughs> <laughs> Rabbi, we got food. What would you like? Ah, I have food to eat that you do not know about. Who got you food? Talk about a close encounter with Christ. When I saw that video, I was like, yeah, we got to watch that. I can't just read, you know to you up here is just a dude. Um, but I think that video brings out so much of the heart of the story, so much of the emotion behind this. This is an emotionally charged encounter because of a little thing that's become known as intersectionality. I'm kind of going off notes here because I've just been thinking about this so much since I had to make those notes for Jamie to print off on Wednesday. So there's this thing called intersectionality. And what that means is, uh, for instance, the hiring practices of a corporation were coming under scrutiny because there was a certain demographic of people that felt discriminated against. Now, in, in the investigation of this corporation, they realized that, no, they, they weren't discriminating against people of color, their hiring practices and, and everything were, were fair across the races of, of people. Didn't, that really didn't matter. They were doing a pretty good job with that. 
they didn't really have any discrimination between men and women in their hiring practices that could be seen. But there was one group of people that was being discriminated against, and that was women of color. See, they would hire, it found out that they would be okay with hiring a, a, a male who had darker skin, and they had no problem hiring white women, but when it came to women of color, there was a problem. Because once you start stacking these uh, minority statuses on top of each other, it just makes life that much harder for people. So once we start stacking with this woman, that she is a woman, so she's already kind of viewed lower than men, and she's a Samaritan on top of that, so that takes her down even farther. And then because of her past and her issues with relational uh, trauma and situations she's been through, that shoves her down even further, down the social ladder. She's experiencing all of these negative forces in her life that just makes everything harder for her. From the most mundane things like going to the well to draw water, much less the more important things like where and how to worship. She feels rejected on all fronts of her life because of all of these things that have come together in this kind of perfect storm of discrimination against her. And yet Jesus has this conversation with her and treats her with dignity and respect and honors her value as a person breaking through all of those barriers that have been put up in front of her for so long. You know, I mentioned uh, to, to my boys this morning as we were picking up trash through the streets of Miss Mitchell. They were like, this is disgusting. This is awful. And I said, yeah, but if we don't pick it up, who's gonna, right? Yes, it's gross, but it's a dirty job, but somebody has to do it, basically. And then I told them what my friend Tim Thompson has said, and he's the pastor at Sherwood Oaks up in Bedford, at the Bedford campus of Sherwood Oaks. And he says, loved places become lovely places. Talking about, you know, he lives right there on the square, so he sees all the renovations and upkeep that have been happening on the square in Bedford, especially like he lives right next to Harp Commons. So he's seen that transformation. He is all about trying to reinvest in his community and make it a loved place and loved places become lovely places. You might see that on your own block uh, in your neighborhoods where one person starts to kind of fix up their house on the outside, add some curb appeal. And next thing you know, you got to keep up with the Joneses. So you might as well throw some flower boxes out there on your windows or take a pressure washer to your sidewalks and siding. Like, I don't know. But little by little, the neighborhood starts to really get some new life into it. So loved places become lovely places. And I would say, let's take that a step further. Loved people become lovely people. People who experience love in their lives become lovely people. Because love, just like this living water that he talks about, doesn't just stay with you. It flows out to those 
around you, when you experience true love in your life, true unconditional Christ-centered love in your life, it can't help but overflow to other people. So let's talk a little bit more in depth about what's happening for just a couple minutes here. All right. I think John, uh, the author, has a special place in his heart for women because we've already seen women being given kind of a, a status of honor just in these first four chapters with Mary and with this woman at the well. First, Mary, the mother of Jesus, um, she was the first instigator of the miracle that happened. Jesus' first sign turning water to wine. Who got that all started? His mom. <laughs> Remember? Like, just kind of ignoring what Jesus says, going straight to the servants, hey, do whatever he tells you. It doesn't happen without her, too, initiating that first miracle, knowing what her son is capable of. And then this Samaritan woman, you see her, she is the first person to whom Jesus revealed his true identity as Messiah. Now, there were other encounters where people came to that conclusion on their own, but this is the first time he says, I am the Messiah. You're talking to him. He entrusts that knowledge to this woman. And not only that, but this Samaritan woman also was one of the first evangelists telling her whole town about Jesus and bringing them to him. Sure, we've seen, you know, Philip and Andrew go and grab a brother or a friend and bring them to Jesus, but she goes and brings the whole town, right? I mean, she is just on fire and wants everybody to have that same kind of experience. So the miracles, Jesus' identity, converting the masses, these are all carried out by women in John's gospel, which I think is important for us to realize. We'll come back to this as we go, by the way. Just wanted to get the ball started on that one. And then like I've talked about, there are several hyperlinks. I, I like to call them hyperlinks because it's like uh, these things would show up in blue and underlined where if you clicked on them, they would immediately send you to another passage. And I won't spend a lot of time going in depth in all of these. I want you to, to see these on your own, to go back and really think about what's happening here. All right, so I've got those in your sermon notes. But first hyperlink is a man and woman near a life-giving source of water. Where does that take place? Well, all the way back at the beginning, in Eden, there, there is a river that flows out and waters basically all of creation. And it's right by this river in Eden where God creates Adam and Eve in the garden by the river, what's, what would later be called the river of life. Adam and Eve. And then we see Jacob and Rachel. Jacob meets his wife Rachel for the first time by a well. Not Jacob's well, that would come later where he would dig a well, uh, but we have that reference, that hyperlink to Jacob's story. Are you greater than our father Jacob? Well, let's think about the Jacob story. Jacob meets his wife Rachel by a well. And then Moses meets his wife Zipporah also by a well. So a man and a woman, not saying that there was any kind of you know, romantic chemistry or anything going on, but it's trying to show us that there is something new happening here. I mean, think about it. Adam and Eve, creation. Jesus, new creation. 
Jacob and Rachel. Jacob would later be called Israel, and from Jacob would come the entire nation of what would be known as Israel. And someone greater than Jacob is here. And then we see Moses meeting his wife, and someone greater than Moses is here. We'll see that later in John's gospel. Something new, something bigger, something better is happening. And John is trying to prime us to see what's going on by having these hyperlinks to the past. We also have the hyperlink of the woman with the, we'll say, questionable reputation, right? The questionable reputation. Well, where do we see women with questionable reputations? Honestly, all throughout the Bible, (laughs) they are featured somewhat prominently. Um, Back in Genesis chapter 38, we see the scandalous story of Judah and Tamar. Again, I won't go into it right now. Look it up on your own if you want to see just a wild ride. But you've got Judah and Tamar in Genesis 38. You've got the story of Rahab in Joshua chapter 6. The woman who saved the Israelite spies and sent them on their way and believed and trusted in Israel's God and was spared in the destruction of Jericho. You see the story of Ruth, this Moabite woman coming into Israel and marrying into the nation. You see the story of Bathsheba and King David in 2 Samuel 11 and all of the mess that went through that. Honestly, you even have the story of Mary, Luke chapters 1 and 2. Mary herself was of scandalous reputation because she became pregnant before she was married. That would actually also be referenced a few times throughout John's gospel where the the Pharisees and the religious leaders say, hey, at least we know who our dad is to Jesus. Like, ouch. So even Mary had this kind of scandalous reputation. And if you notice anything in common about all of these women, they are included in the genealogy of Jesus. If you read through the opening chapter of Matthew, all of these women are there. So when Jesus has these women in his own lineage, these are his great, 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 great grandmothers. Is it any surprise that he's able to have a dignified conversation with this woman of questionable reputation? Because honestly, when sin hits close to home, sometimes we're a little less judgy about it. We might be super judgy about divorce until it happens in our own families. We might be super judgy about sex outside of marriage unless it happens in our own families, our own lives. We might be super judgy about whatever kind of sin it may be until it hits close to home. And then we can have a little bit more empathy for people because we've been through it or somebody we love has been through it. I think Jesus knew the women that got him here. And so he's able to have this conversation with this woman with love, respect, and dignity. And then the final hyperlink that I want to point out is the hyperlink of living water. He says, if you'd asked me for a drink, I would give you living water and you'll never go thirsty again. (laughs) Wouldn't that be awesome? right? Like so many times I'm like, can I just get an IV drip of coffee? Like just so it just gets in me, right? And I don't have to like keep chugging it and making more and all that stuff. Wouldn't that be great? And she takes him literally, just like Nicodemus did. 
with you must be born again. How can I be born again when I'm old? Can I go into my mother's womb a second time? She also takes him literally at first. Just give me this water. That'd be fantastic so I don't have to keep coming to this well every day. But he's trying to take her on a deeper journey here because he knows she can handle it. This idea of living water, again, is all through the Hebrew scriptures, particularly the prophets. Now, interestingly enough, the prophets weren't highly valued by the Samaritan people in their religion. They followed the Torah, but they kind of ignored the rest of the Hebrew scriptures. But I think if she took the time, she could read through passages like Ezekiel 47, passages like Zechariah 14 or Jeremiah 2 or Isaiah 44 and 55. All of these passages talk about this living water and living water as opposed to stagnant well water. Now, well water might be fine. It might be a fresh source of water for you to, to live by. But if you had a choice between a well or a crystal clear mountain stream, which are you going for? The mountain stream. It's more living, as they would say in the ancient days. There's a section of the sea that doesn't have an outlet, and so it becomes super salty, and not much can live there either. It's got to have a way to escape, too. So this living water that Jesus talks about, he says, will become in you a, a spring welling up to eternal life. In other words, it's going to flow out of you into other people. Something new, something fresh, something life-giving is happening here. And then she kind of changes the subject a little bit because she's getting a bit uncomfortable with the whole, you know, oh, you're getting too close to home having, you know, talking about all my past husbands and broken relationships. So she changes the subject between worship on Mount Gerizim for the Samaritans or the temple in Jerusalem. And even to this day on Mount Gerizim, a small group of Samaritan people still have their worship ceremonies. It's kind of fascinating. So she brings up this question of like, where do we worship? And Jesus basically says, yeah, the Jews are, are right. I mean, we're in the right here, worshiping in Jerusalem at the temple. He says, but it's not going to matter for long. <laughs> it's not going to matter for long. Because what really matters when it comes to worship, when it really matters, uh, what really matters when it comes to connecting with God is not the location. It's not the building. It's not the name on the building. It's about the heart. It's about the people of God coming together in spirit and in truth, worshiping wholeheartedly. 
God is spirit. And we would see later in John, Jesus is truth. Worship is not about a place, it's about a person, the person of Christ, the spirit of God filling our lives, welling up within us so that we can't help but to worship no matter where we are, no matter who we're with, no matter what time of day it is, no matter what day of the week it is, that's not important. What really matters is who lives inside you. And we all become the temple I think Jesus is hinting at something that's also bigger going on here, that Jesus became what the temple was supposed to be. I've already mentioned this back in John chapter 2. But here we see this even more fleshed out, that Jesus himself was becoming what the temple was supposed to be. The temple is a place where heaven and earth meet, where heaven and earth overlap. It's a place where God's glory and presence were experienced where forgiveness was offered, where lives are restored, where prayers are answered, where sacrifices are made, where worship was lifted up, where people from every nation could encounter the God of the universe. That's what the temple for the Jews was supposed to be, but it failed in its duties, and Christ himself was becoming that temple for us. Later on, the New Testament writers would say that you yourselves are a temple. Your bodies are the temple. Peter would say you are being built into a spiritual house. Each one of us are like living stones in this spiritual house. Now the church in Christ is what the temple was supposed to be. A place where all are welcome. Everyone And not just who we say might be welcome, but really isn't, but everybody really can experience Christ in the church. That's what it's supposed to be like. A place where heaven and earth meet. A place where forgiveness can be found. A place where worship can be lifted up without hindrance. And Jesus is having this conversation with this Samaritan woman. (laughs) This whole idea of do you know who you're talking to? How it starts out this woman being caught by surprise, like, do you know who you're talking to? Like, really? You're not supposed to be talking to me. (laughs) And Jesus would, like I said, flip that around on her, like, do you know who you're talking to? You're talking to the Messiah. That's me. I love that, like, I guess we'll just have to wait till the Messiah comes. He'll explain it all. (laughs) Jesus was like, that's me. That's That's me. I love that little scene. Do you know who you're talking to? And then finally, I love that she goes, runs back into town, leaves her jar there. And the disciples come up like, hey, you hungry? And Jesus says, I have food. And they're like, who brought you food? To which Jesus says, and that's where the video stopped. The food that I have is to do the will of the father, of the one who sent me. And she runs out, gets the whole village, and he has this conversation with his disciples about the harvest. Like, you you sow, and then you wait four months, and then the harvest is going to be ready. But I tell you, the sower and the reaper are working overtime right now. It's happening right now. Open your eyes and look at the fields because they are ready for the harvest. I hope if you made it to the Persimmon Festival, you were looking around with eyes wide open because some of the stuff probably shocked you. But... The, f- the harvest is ready. The fields 
are ripe. People are looking and desiring something deeper in their lives. That's why so many people turn to drugs or alcohol or relationships or uh, going on spending sprees on Amazon or whatever, trying to find fulfillment. This woman trying to find fulfillment, trying to find satisfaction in relationship after relationship after relationship for something that's not ever gonna satisfy her. What are you looking for that's not gonna satisfy you? Because there are people just like this woman everywhere you look, even if you look in the mirror sometimes. There are people just like her that need to hear about this living water that's really going to satisfy. This food that God gives us that will satisfy us more than the choicest foods you can get at Golden Corral. Right? You eat those all-you-can-eat buffets. You go home with a food baby. Like two hours later, you're like, I could use a snack. Right? (laughs) Only God can satisfy those deeper longings and cravings of the heart. There are people like her all over. So what are we desiring today? This woman was desiring something deeper and she found it in Christ. C.S. Lewis would say, If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. If I find in myself desires that nothing in this world can satisfy, the only conclusion is I was made for another world. You and I and every person in this town, in this county, was made for another world, for a deeper purpose. To be drawn into relationship with Christ. To have eternal life. To experience this living water that can well up within us and outflow into everyone else around. Let's pray, and then we'll invite the worship team back up. Father God, we thank you so much for the blessing of today. God, we are thankful that we were able to serve this community by cleaning up uh, the streets, and I pray that this town will become a more loved place, a more lovely place. Through our worship, through our gathering, through our service to this community and to you, God, may we be a light and shine in this darkness. May we give people an encounter with Christ. May they experience that living water for themselves that will flow up within them and pour out to others around so that your good news, your your goodness, your kindness, your love may pour out to all the people around us. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for breaking down all of those barriers so that we can come to you and worship in spirit and in truth without hindrance. May we be the kind of men and women who are willing to go out into your harvest and tell others about the good news of Christ. In your son's name we pray.